the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cam number 171 for October 6th, 2008. And welcome to the show. I'm Dave Hamilton. I'm here with John Braun and uh, Pilot Pete sitting in on this one, too. Hi, John. Hi, Pete. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. Uh, so we have uh, we have a backlog of questions, John. It seems like uh, the volume of questions that's uh, that comes in has been increasing steadily over the last couple of weeks. But that's good because it gives us a lot to choose from. Of course, we can't always get to uh, to everything. But but we try. That makes us sad. That part does make us sad. You know, we could do a second show uh, some weeks, John. We've, I know we've talked about this. We, we could and we will. Really? Talk. We will talk. <laughs> oh, yeah. Great. Thanks, John. <laughs> Nicely done. Uh, okay. So we have some uh, we have some follow ups to really kind of cap off the, the discussion on media longevity that we'll talk about at the end here. Uh as well as revisiting some of the shutdown problems that we talked about in last show. John, you prepped some great stuff about a couple of the IAP issues. And the first thing we're going to talk about is Wi-Fi troubleshooting because, well, because some of you are having some problems and uh, we'll see if we can't get this rolling. And I'm looking for Joe here, John. That's why I'm trying to buy time. Oh, I see what I did. I see it. See how I did that. Joe says, since I changed from my Linksys router to my BT home hub and also changed the location of the router from the old office upstairs to the new office downstairs, our connection has progressively slowed down to the point that my download speed is 130 kilobits per second and my upload speed is 330. Surely the download speed shouldn't be slower than upload speed. I know this isn't related to the distance from the exchange geographically as I used to get good speeds of about 1.5 to 2 megabits. I'm wirelessly connected to the router, and I did the speed test on speedtest.net when I was next to the router. Any ideas what could have happened, and how can I fix it? John? Um, where I'll start here, so so number one, and and a lot of longtime listeners uh, know this, but we'll restate it because I think it's important. Whenever you approach a problem, you, you try to not change too many variables at once. And what concerns me here is that two things have changed. One is location. Another is uh, the device. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, so, so we haven't, we haven't honored the troubleshooting process, if you will, because we've changed no, too many variables. But in my case, in this case, I would guess or, or suggest an approach. So the device could certainly be the problem. And uh, although you're exper- this is being experienced wirelessly, which that suggests one, course of action but but the immediate one that i would do is try to hook up perhaps in a wired fashion and see if you see the same slowdown if you don't then you can conclude perhaps that the wireless protocol is the thing causing the problem so just one facet of how and how to you know figure that sort of thing out um could be that you know as we talk well wireless i'll mention that too um uh pete suggests this as well is uh, the the firmware maybe maybe it's old you know, especially 802.11n, there's been some draft versions, maybe you got an old one. See if they can flash your device or upgrade it to the, the latest standard. Because I, Though I thought that one's pretty much finalized, but I guess there could be some draft versions. I don't know. Yeah, you know, and the other thing is using something like speed test to check 
and, and, and I lump all of the online test services together here, using something like that online to test doesn't really give you an, a, a, again, it's that whole troubleshooting process. There's too many variables out there. You're not just testing your wireless connection. You're testing your internet connection simultaneously. Right. And so, you know, I, there's a tool that I use now. It's sort of a geeky tool because you have to use it from the command line. And maybe there is a, a GUI version or, or a complementary GUI tool uh, to this. But the, the tool I use is called iPerf, I-P-E-R-F as in Frank. And uh, you run it from the command line and all it does is send data back and forth. So you run it on two machines. You run it on one. You use the dash S option to put it in server mode. And then on the other machine, you use the dash C option. You say, I'm a client. And then you give it the IP address of the computer you're going to connect to. So it, you know, it's a, a test only of your local network, uh, assuming you have two machines. And what port? Uh, it, it'll work. Uh, you don't need to specify a port. It'll. Okay. It, it, it so uses something common or. Yeah, okay. It, okay. Well, I mean, it's, you're, you're running the same piece of software on both sides. So presumably it has a port that it uses and, and that's oh, okay. That. On a local network. Yeah. That's, it's, yeah. That's it's cool. just all local. Right. Yeah. You're not going mm-hmm. to the outside world. So, so that always allows me like when I want to test gigabit between the house and the, and the office here or whatever, that's what I use. And, uh, and it's very reliable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but it sounds like Joe's internet connection is not, uh, going to be as slow as as what he's seeing with his with his download speeds here. Yes. So there's there's mm-hmm. something wrong. I like your idea of plugging in wired uh, because that, you know, that'll at least rule out yep. uh, that the Internet connection is the issue. Yeah. And the only thing I, I'd observe is with a lot of these test sites, if you pick one that's close to you, if you know what's close to you, that's probably you get the best results. Maybe kind of obvious, but, you know, like I pick New York City, you probably pick Boston as, you know, the nearest big pipe that you know you won't be crawling actually i think i usually speed test usually selects portland maine for me really oh okay. yeah yeah but speed test you know speed test can can't go as fast as our connections can go oh of course not it, you know it it um it, it tends to max out about 13 or 14 whereas i know my connection goes up to uh 18 at least when i'm in, in those so, initial bursts so anyway so some things to try but you know it may Sounds silly, but you may actually want to get, and I've done this, I think you've done this, Dave, you get a chart, you get yes and no columns for each variable, and you try them out and you figure it out. Yep. It yep. takes, it's annoying at first because it's, you know, you got to get a piece of graph paper, draw pictures or something, but, but, but it, it works, you know, just eliminate all the options. Yeah. As long as you don't have too, too many, then, then it gets to be a pain. Right. Yeah. I, but slowing it down from N to G, uh, I think that's another, you know, a good test. See if it see if it gets slower. See if it gets faster. You know, the, these are the things you got to check out, or try the old router if uh, if you still have that, and try the old router in the new location and see if it's if it's the router that's causing. Yeah, the with shoot. this device, the only thing I noticed is that it's only a hundred device, you know, instead mm-hmm. of a gigabit device. So, but but I don't, I don't think that's the bottleneck. No, and most of the Linksys routers are are hundred megabit as well, because mm-hmm. because nobody's got an internet connection that's going to go gig yet. Yet. Right. That's right. That's right. All right. Okay. Well, uh, well while we're speaking of, of these Wi-Fi issues, Robert called in and then I had a brief email exchange with him. Uh, so we'll share kind of both sides of this. Hey, it's desperate, Robert. I've been working on this thing for probably about three hours now tonight. 
And um, I tried swapping out the uh, extreme card, and that had uh, no effect. One thing I did do is, is I created a little network uh, from my iBook, and the iBook connects to the G5, lickety split, no problem whatsoever. If I go in and, collect, uh, and connect as I see the files and it sees everything fine. Um, but when I try the opposite and connect from the G5 to the iBook, okay, so this is totally, has nothing to do with my network because my, my network's, you know, I'm not, I'm not accessing the network from downstairs. Um, I, I, it takes forever. I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm watching the scroll wheel and you know, it's like while I was waiting for the scroll wheel for the G5 to connect, um, I clicked on in the iBook and one, two, three, I see the folders that I need to see from the other side. And now it just told me that it's not showing me anything. When I hit connect as, it says connection failed. So it has something to do with what I'm able to receive on this G5. I don't know if there's any preferences that I can kill or not. But. Yeah, it, and we went kind of round and round with a lot of the same uh, suggestions that, that John and I just talked about. And then I got an email from Robert, and I'll spare everyone the uh, the colorful language <laughs> <laughs> and, and just get to the point. Uh, it turns out my neighbors changed the frequency channel they were broadcasting on their wireless network. I used Max Stumbler or iStumbler to figure that out. Once I switched my router to channel 11, my speed was amazing. Moreover, my range was also increased to the point where my G5 now has five full bars. So again, you know, Robert was, was being very diligent I mean, to the point where he was swapping out cards, truly trying to honor the troubleshooting process. And of course, with a wireless network, there are factors outside of your control. And, uh, and that clearly is one of them. So, yeah, I did one recently. I actually did a little piece. We'll link to it, but uh, something called Air Radar, which I think is a, a little friendlier, but it shows a lot of things like channels and signal noise, things like that for all the base stations around you. So if you get a tool like this, or iStumbler, of course, is very is very good. Um, yeah, you can look for these, you know, ongoing interference issues where as people move in or switch around. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, yeah, you, you know, and we've said it many times by default, wireless routers all sit on channel six. So uh, knowing what your neighbors are using and moving away from that um, and even preemptively, you know, Robert said he moved to 11. I'm assuming he might have moved from six to 11. Uh, I always just get off six, even if I don't see any other networks around me, because that way I don't suddenly have some day where. Uh, you know, my neighbor sets up a router and puts it in default mode and now suddenly nothing works. Yep. So, And actually, I'm looking at the, the snapshot just, you know, kind of in a random small neighborhood. And mm -hmm. I see four on six, a couple on one, one on 11. Mm. So, um, so, yeah, I think I, I think you got something there. Or actually, I would look the, the closest one to me with the high signal strength. That's a channel I won't be on. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Very smart. Very smart. All right. Uh, and Tom. As to, to wrap up our Wi-Fi network uh, part of the show, Tom asks, here's the problem. A neighbor has an open Wi-Fi network with the somewhat nefarious sounding SSID of Sinister. Occasionally, <laughs> <laughs> go figure, uh, occasionally when my own airport network isn't detected right away, the Macs in my household will connect automatically to this CD sounding open network. 
Normally, I pay attention to the network my Macs join, but I'm not so sure that other users on my network would notice it happening. So, what can I do to prevent my Macs from attempting to automatically connect to this neighbor's or any other open network? I'm familiar with I'm familiar with the preferred network setting, but what I'm looking for is something like a banned network setting. There are obvious security risks to connecting to an open network. I don't want any of my network traffic to be available for sniffing by someone else. Yeah, I don't blame you, Tom, especially a guy who named his network Sinister. Uh, so, John, what uh, you got? I know you got some thoughts here. So, uh, a couple of thoughts. So, where I would look would be if you go into System Preferences Network. You're going to have airport and there's a little box there. Ask to join new networks. If you click on airport, I would say yes. So this automatic thing does not happen, but then it says no networks will be joined automatically. So the next thing you want to do is if you click on advanced, there's an airport tab under that is preferred networks. These are the networks that your Mac has seen and trusts and will um, unless you tell it otherwise, we'll automatically log into. You want to get rid of all of those. Yes, this is a pain in the neck. We are balancing security versus usability. But And then the other thing is there's a box saying, remember any network computer is joined. I would uncheck that so it doesn't remember if you stumble across something else. So uh, what I'm suggesting is a certain combination of wireless settings, which I think will avoid you automatically hopping on a network without it asking you, about it, and even if you do, it you know won't remember it. So yeah. I I think that is the best within the the confines of the Apple software that you can do to avoid this. Yeah, I don't know of a way of saying join everything but this network. I don't think there's a banned network list, or at least there's not in the UI. Maybe there's maybe there's a command line way of doing it. Uh, if anybody out there knows, obviously, let us know, and we'll. Uh, Filter the information along or funnel the information along. We'll run it through a sieve. How's that sound, John? No. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying. What type of sieve? Okay. Uh, Our our first sponsor for this show is Smile on My Mac. Of course, they've been a sponsor of the show for a long time and recently released PDF Pen 4. PDF Pen being a piece of software that allows you to manipulate PDFs and create PDFs in a lot of different ways. Version four now adds the ability uh, internal to the software for it to OCR optical character recognition. Meaning if you put a, uh, like a TIFF file in, that has got text. It will offer to scan that text inside uh, the software and convert it into editable text. Uh, also now imparts Microsoft word documents directly. Uh, and if with PDF pen pro, you can create and edit table of contents. So they've, they've added, uh, all kinds of stuff here. Smile on my Mac.com PDF pen is forty nine ninety five, and PDF pen pro is ninety nine ninety five. And just now, uh, this week, I think version 4.0.1 came out and there's a preference now for OCR prompting. So for those of you that updated to version four, and it was prompting you to scan for uh, uh, scan a document with OCR every time you opened it. You can turn that off and only scan when you want to. So uh, they released version four on September 18th. And on October 1st, they had already listened to users comments and made an adjustment. And I think there's some bug fixes or some other minor tweaks in there with 4.0.12. PDF Pen Pro and PDF Pen version four. 
0.1 from smileonmymac.com. And with this, John, we move on to Matthew, who writes, I must impose upon your time and ask a question. Occasionally, when using Safari to view secure websites, Safari will throw up the following message or something reasonably similar, saying Safari can't open the page www.server.com because it couldn't establish a secure connection to the server www.server.com. Now, once this happens, attempting to open the same page in any, in another browser causes the same problem with a slightly different message. In addition, resetting Safari completely or repairing the keychain produces no positive results. I know of but one solution, and that is to log into an administrative account, open Safari, close Safari, log out, then log back into the non-administrative account. This surprisingly will allow Safari to once again access secure sites for the time being. Have you come across this? Do you know of a permanent fix? I would greatly appreciate it if you have a solution because I access many secure sites during the week and can't afford to be without these sites. Using 10.5.5 on a G5 iMac. All right. Uh, I know you did some research on this, John, so uh, why don't you kick it off and we'll go from yeah, there. Yeah, a little bit, though. It, it, it sounds like a mess. Yes. <laughs> I'll say first off because I've never run into this. But it would have to do with certificates. Um, certificates are things that... Um, your computer knows about servers know about and if if they match up then you have a secure connection and your data is protected unfortunately there are various little things that can make these certificates not work and if they don't work right or they're old or they're corrupted or or whatever or they they don't trust another one then you get these error messages so probably the best place place to look is keychain access and i would suggest keychain access under the keychains there's system roots there's a whole bunch of these that you can look at, and you should make sure when you look at them that none of them seem to be expired or, or busted or whatever. You know, you'll see an expiration date and some other things because um, there bring cases where they expire. Um, the other cases that you may not, um, you know, whatever. Uh, so there's a list of these guys that the browser people trust, and and they uh, the. Uh, it may not be included. So your browser may not know about a certain certificate. We'll just call it that. And you have to get one um, and say, yes, I trust this. And then your browser will stop complaining. I'm, I'm suspecting that may be part of this problem is that it's a somebody using a certificate that's not known to the browser. And, and the best way it can tell you there's a problem, which is totally incomprehensible, is <laughs> what was described. So that'd be my suggestion. And uh, Apple does have articles telling you how to import new certificates if you need to do so, um, which I think is what's happening in this case. And I don't know your thoughts, Dave. Well, you know, one thing that I noticed as I was rereading his his question for our listeners here, John, is that he said when he logs into an administrator account, it seems to mm. work fine. And then logging back into his other account. So I have to assume he's got a non-administrator account that he's using for uh, the lion's share of what he does. Once it's been, once the keychain or the certificate has been opened, then he's able mm -hmm. to do it. So it makes me think that, you know, all this stuff is stored in the system keychain, I believe. Um, and so uh, I think I see where you're going. I think there may be different keychains involved here or. Well, no, they should. All the certificates should be stored in the system keychain, which right. should be open for all users. Now, what mm -hmm. it sounds like, though, is that portion of it is locked out until an administrator opens it up 
and then hmm. it's open uh, for all the other users on the on the machine. That's not how it's supposed to work, folks. But but it seems like that might be happening here. I'd be curious to see if creating a new user account, uh, not administrator privileges, just a regular user account. There there might be something wrong with the permissions or or the security settings for Andrew's. Um, uh, I think it was Andrew, right? No, sorry, Andrew's the next one. Matthew's account. Matthew. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I wonder if, if that, um, I wonder if that's the issue, uh, you know, that, that cause it, it just seems strange that opening it with an administrator, you know, obviously it, mm-hmm. it's blazing a path somewhere and, uh, I don't know, just, it just, something doesn't seem quite right. So. And then there's also the uh, the OCSP and CRL. Did you tell them about that, John? You have that? Uh... Um, yeah, we have it here. So uh, okay. you know, keychain access certificates under preferences. Yep. Certificates. The the there will be uh, uh, the, these are two protocols. To say hey, is this certificate valid? Unfortunately, they they're not always supported properly. So when it tries to check that, it just kind of gives up. Yep. Or, locks up. <laughs> yeah, I, I had an issue with certificates on uh, on my machine and I don't know how, but OCSP got turned on the on, online certificate status protocol um, was was going out and, and trying to verify these certificates. So going into, like John said, keychain access preferences and then the certificates tab and turning both of those off uh, mm. solved all my problems. So it's less secure, but as as I think we mentioned, security versus usability. If you <laughs> yeah. can't do what you need to do. Yeah. So, so Matthew, try try that with another user account and and report back to us because that this sounds very curious. Um, it it should not work that way, and I'm wondering if you've got got an issue there. Yeah, All right. Uh, one other thing I yeah, saw. Go. Did yeah. you mention the cookie cookie thing here? No, I I well, I, didn't I found one posting okay. suggesting uh, every now and then a, a cookie misconfigured or or not accepted may cause this, but really. I thought mm, cookies and certificates found, were, you know. Oh, they're totally separate. Yeah, right. but, but but um, yeah. I'll, I'll find the post. I, I found okay. an offbeat post that suggested, hey, I changed this, you know, cookie preference, and all of a sudden something started to work again. So, huh. all right. Well, we'll link to it. Yeah, stranger things have happened. Yeah. Oh yes. Oh yeah. Uh, Andrew writes. I recently started having a weird issue with iTunes. Occasionally, an error pops up saying the iTunes library file cannot be saved. An unknown error occurred. And then in parentheses, one, three, zero, one, one. I'm not really sure what that means, but it seems not good to me. I poked around online and found a discussion thread on Apple's discussions, which was less than helpful. Just wondering if you have any suggestions, as unlike the poster in the forums, I don't have an older copy of my iTunes library to replace it with. Uh, so, John, you, you found some some stuff out about how to manage iTunes libraries, I think, here. Yeah, I, guess, I mean, I mean, it's kind of a, uh, you know, nuke and pave is, as you've put it in the past. But um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there are instructions how to recreate your iTunes library, which I, I saw in some discussions is, is kind of a you know, way to try, try to address this. It's extreme. But, um, you know, it requires you to get rid of certain, you know, files that contain uh, directories and, and we have the detailed instructions from uh, Apple but um, usually that's that's the last thing at the end of the chain I don't know what what you have to uh, suggest yeah uh, so there is it, repairing the library I think is is really it it sounds like the library is damaged what you might do is 
quit iTunes and make a copy of the two files that sit in your home uh, music iTunes folder. And they are iTunes library and iTunes music library dot XML. So making copies of those, if the file itself is damaged or, you know, stored on a damaged section of the disc, uh, that might fix it. But chances are you're, yeah, you got to just go and recreate that library. Um, I, I don't, I mean, I, unfortunately they don't offer any, uh, any way to, to repair it. Okay. Pilot Pete's telling us about a tool called Sanuti. Yeah. It's, it's iTunes, iTunes spelled backwards. backwards. Yeah. Which is, uh, and there's a couple others out there that are good library managers that may help him at least do the export and import and okay. continue to use iTunes. Um, that's actually a good one to get if your music off of your iPod. For instance, my son had to uh, reinstall on his MacBook, and he had all his music on his iPod. And he's like, oh, Dad, I lost all my music. I said, well, you haven't refreshed your iPod, have you? He's, no. So oh, we'll go get Sanuti. We'll pull your music back down and rebuild your library that way. Huh. So, Very cool. That's good to know. I like this. Cool. Okay. Well, uh, maybe you can try Sanuti. It doesn't sound like it repairs the library. It just sounds like it rebuilds it for it you. It helps you manage it. Got it. Get it out. So you can see it. Yeah. Got it. Got it. That's a big stumbling block I always noticed. Yeah. Not being able to see what you're doing. Uh, All right. So last week we talked about a machine that wouldn't shut down. And and we got some interesting comments about this. Uh, Robert, Robert has one. And then, and then we'll talk about some of the others that we got because it, it gets curiouser and curiouser. Hey guys, um, this is Robert from New Jersey, and I'm calling in regards to the fella who had a phone call last week where his Mac was not shutting down unless he had to hold down the power button. Um, my recommendation is Onyx. Um, I would run Onyx, repair permissions, run daily scripts, optimize the complete system, and delete all cache files. Uh, check them all. Get rid of it. And then restart and see what happens. I don't know if that'll solve the problem, but uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so Onyx. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. We we've mentioned. I've certainly mentioned Onyx before. It's it's one of my favorite go to utilities, and and is a perfect way of of doing that. I I always feel like when I'm when I'm deleting virtual memory cache files, though, I feel a lot better about doing that, and I feel like it happens in a much cleaner way. When I'm doing it in single user mode and those files aren't active, uh, when you're doing that sort of thing with Onyx, um, I, I just can't believe that it can be effective enough because it's trying to modify files that the system is inherently tied to. I mean, it is like, you know, integrated with those files. So I, I can't imagine that Onyx deletes virtual memory cache files properly uh, or as well as you would hmm. doing it from the, the command line where you know, they're not in use. Yeah, I, I'd leave the OS to deal with that. Well, yeah, but yeah, but he's having a problem, so we got to get past the OS. We can't. Right. The OS didn't. <laughs> the OS. The OS has failed him. Failed. Or perhaps it hasn't. And and that's where the uh. the content of the rest of we got. You know, when I saw the first email suggesting what we're going to talk about here, I thought, yeah, it's a wild yeah, right. card. Right. Yeah. Right. And then when there were like I saw that you know, too. It was it five was. to ten more along the same lines. It was like we got to talk about this and what it is. It's possible. 
all these people independently suggested that this behavior where a machine gets to the uh, all the windows go away. And the only thing that happens is that spinning gear. When it gets to that point, if it sticks and does not reboot, it's an indicator that the hard drive is dying. And like I said, we had, you know, many of you email in with this as the lone symptom you all saw just before the drive took a nosedive and never so, came back. So it's either a trend or the only outlet for people that are bitter that their hard drives have rolled over and died. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I guess that's possible. It would be odd, though, if, if we had a significant cross-section of our listeners that, that was uh, very upset about this and, and looking for a way of, of, you know, of just coming out and... Sorry, that yeah. just came to me. No, I it, apologize. It's, of course, it's possible, John. We, uh, we always appreciate those sorts of things. But they have... Thoughts. No, actually, we saw this in, in the, the... Well, I think we mentioned it one mention it again but the chaining thing where we, we had a, a past problem uh, which involved chaining drives and i i think they were western digital um and apparently someone pointed out they had a couple that didn't work right and it's always possible mm-hmm. so you get a run of something that just uh, yeah you know there, there was an interesting thing and, and now i'm going totally off the cuff on this here yep go brother when we talked about uh a listener who had three external Western digital drives and was having trouble getting one to connect. Uh, We got some emails after the fact that said, okay, look, you know, a lot of times these hard drive uh, manufacturers that are making these cases will put Mm -hmm. the same ID on all of the chips in the Uh case. So when you, when you string too many of them together, sometimes the OS doesn't know which one it's reaching out and trying to touch. Uh, and using different brand cases can be a, uh, you know, a solution to that problem. Th- that's pretty far fetched uh, or it's pretty out there in that I haven't seen a whole lot of that, but it's certainly possible. So uh, so I, I throw it out there as advice from one listener to all of the others. Mm. So, But honestly, I would think a shutdown does involve some level of drive activity. So, of course. Who knows? Could be the power surge or the, the, you know, extended, you know, duration of trying to do something, which the drive is saying help. Yeah, it's it. It's interesting. Um, yeah. Interesting. All right. Our second sponsor for this show is Circus Ponies. And of course, they've been a sponsor for a little while here and just released uh, on September 22nd. Notebook 3.0. Now, Notebook is an application that allows you to organize things into different notebooks. And so you can keep projects separated out Um, inside the notebooks. You can have text, you can have pictures, you can have PDFs. Uh, The new version uh, adds sketching support so that you can draw right inside the application. If you've got something that you've just got in your head and you've got to get out quick, you just draw it and, it's right there. You can also use its new diagramming tools to actually create, uh, you know, flow charts and things that look like that. Uh, sticky notes now can be pasted inside or on top of documents inside your notebook. They can hold text. They can hold diagrams. You can even do handwritten text. So you can use the sketching for that. Uh, we had one listener write in and uh, and Jeremy says, the thing about Circus Pony's notebook for me is the indexes. Check them out. 
They sort and filter in ways that allow you to produce lists and to-dos and all kinds of goodies from the data you already input. For me, the indexes, in 3.0 they call them multi-decks, are what sets this great app apart. So definitely check that out, and thanks, Jeremy. This is at circusponies.com. It's Notebook 3.0. The Notebook pricing is $49.95, and uh, if you want a three-user family pack, you can actually get a uh, three for the price of two at $99.95. So that's Notebook 3.0 from Circus Ponies at circusponies.com. And we appreciate them being a sponsor too. Indeed. Do you have something to add there, John? I heard you. I heard you chiming no. in, warming no. up, revving no. up. No chiming. Well, then we move on to uh, the CD and DVD discussion that we've had. We, <laughs> we've been talking. Yeah. Well, we've been talking <laughs> about the length of time that a CD or the data on a CD or the data that you've burned to a DVD will last, and uh, and I think what we've got here will will really kind of tie this up so uh, i'll let we'll let dave go first right not me dave but listener dave yeah sounds good hey guys this is dave from pennsylvania and uh, i have a question about show number 170 where you said about um, uh, recordable cds and dvds and the longevity of them i actually have cds from 1995 um and i probably had about 50 or 60 of them and uh, they're all still good, and uh, they read just fine. Um, I did find a few of them with what looked like to, to me to be like uh, the only thing I can describe it as a CD rot, where the actual uh, data layer looked like it was eaten away, and uh, have no explanation for why. That was only a few of them, though. So out of out of a lot of them, most of them are good. And also, I have a pack of CDRs that I bought. Way back, uh, like 1996, I'd say, um, that uh, I've had since then, and I can still write to them. Wow. So uh, I don't know if that uh, means anything to you guys or not, So, but I just want to let you know. Um, this is where you cut me off. It is. And you have been cut off. Thank you, though, Dave. Cut him off. Dude, this is like Super Dave. I'm sorry. I don't think I don't know what he's doing to get these amazing longevity numbers, but actually I'd be curious what media, I mean, if, if the company's still in business, I I think they'd love to meet you. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's, that's probably true. And I've I've seen that phenomenon though. Um, uh, and I think it's more when you use organic dyes or whatever versus metal where you see, it almost looks like it's moldy and stuff. And I think it, it actually is kind of, well, it's degrading in some fashion, but right. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, Mort writes in uh, and, and, and speaks to s- some more of this. Uh, and I'm just going to read what Mort wrote because it, it, it's fan- it, fantastic. So details of CD and DVD construction are that the recording media is on the clear plastic surface just under the label. Therefore, a felt tip pen is required to not destroy the label when writing on the label surface. If the recording media is silver or gold, then you can get 30 or more more years of CD or DVD life. If the media is light blue or green, then it is likely to be a chemical layer good for five years or less. Now, this this is counter to what we've seen uh, in other places. Certainly metal lasts longer, but the five year number for blue or green uh, that that's Mort's uh, experience. And he's obviously been uh, involved in these things for a long time. So this is interesting. Humans excrete acid from their skin during certain physical conditions, 
Uh, and it turns out even if you're wearing rubber gloves, the acid comes through. Therefore, the CD or DVD media should never get touched on the flat surface of the label, but only held by the edges. Interestingly, going back to our discussion about hard drives, John Mort also writes magnetic media is always seeing the Earth's magnetic field. If the media is not moved in a year, then the Earth will change the magnetic configuration on the media by trying to align all the north south items. Therefore, you must operate that drive every six months or so to keep the data safe. Uh, in 1930, Geosource started collecting data on 10-inch reels of magnetic tape. Uh, in the 70s, they were continuing to protect their tapes by rewinding each tape annually and storing them in a temperature and humidity-controlled space. To my knowledge, they never lost data. So, oh. Thank you, Mort. This is uh, fantastic to, uh, to hear. And interesting about the... Uh, the the acid on the skin it's good to know not to touch that Ooh. well yeah. that's why when you see initially people handling these very gingerly and you're like what's wrong with them why are they doing this that's why yeah because yeah. any sort of any contact with the with the you know layer that takes the data is is bad yep and uh and you know we also got an email from stan uh who said his experiences and research showed that MAM-A brand, which used to be Mitsui uh, Gold, has some secret coating that makes them last. They, they makes them much less prone to scratches. Uh, and he also said that permanent markers are bad uh, and that you shouldn't write on the CD with a permanent marker. And I thought, hmm. well, yeah. And I emailed him back and said, OK, this is odd because what else? I mean, I you know don't want to use a ballpoint pen. What should I use? And no. he said <laughs> the ink in. Uh, you know, a Sharpie, if you will, can permeate that top layer. And if it does, of course, um, you know, following Mort's uh, description there, that's where the, the data is right below the label. So, uh, hmm. you know, my, yeah. Uh, Stan said, if you want to write with a permanent marker and be certain you're safe, only write on the clear part of the disc where there's no media on the other side. So. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Should we, uh, and, and we should follow us up with, do we have anything else to say here, John, before we uh, followed up with Mark's question? No, I like the whole, uh, especially the hard drive thing where we touched yeah. on, and I think it's agreed, yeah. hard drives are probably the best, but you can't just let them sit on the shelf. Right. So I stand corrected because that was my impression. Yeah. Yeah. And so, Stan uh, said and, the same thing. I guess thing. any media yeah. or anything, anything, you know, fire up the hard drive once a year or whatever, just to make sure it doesn't, yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> atrophy and, and never start up again. Well, and it, it, it says both Stan and Mort, uh, just to be clear, said do it every six months because if you wait a full year, uh, the, the drive will start to realign. Right. So. Six months minimum, which is interesting because I've got stacks of hard drives downstairs that I've pulled out of old servers mm -hmm. or whatever. And uh, I, I'm, Try I'm, I'm guessing. Well, yeah. I don't, as we talked about last week, I don't have the interfaces here <laughs> to match up to those drives. So they're kind of useless. But I I couldn't just throw them away because they had sensitive data on them. So, you know, yeah. I guess I guess I got to get out the well, sledgehammer some weekend or the well, we saw at some shows they have drive shredders. Right. If, you're, right. if you're just into shredding up hard drives, somebody makes a machine that does it very well. That's great. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's listen to Mark's question. I think it's uh, I put it in the group here, which means it must be related. John and Dave, uh, this is Mark. Um, I love your show. 
I uh, listen to it every week. Uh, keep up the great work. Uh, I was listening to your most recent one, and you guys were talking about saving on to uh, DVDs, CDs. And um, what's your take on what should I save as far as media, photos, movies, versus what do I need to put onto which um, form of disc, CD versus DVD? I know movies you got to put onto DVDs. But as far as backing up your photos, um, can you back up photos onto a DVD? And what is the pros versus cons of backing up onto a DVD with a photo media? And um, John and Dave, I both uh, I follow both of you guys on Twitter. So um, you do have followers out there, which I'm sure you are aware of. And um, enjoy listening to your little conversations back and forth. So I um, look forward to your uh, your response, and um, uh, we'll look forward to your next uh, podcast. Bye bye. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Uh, okay, so th- this is interesting, right, John? Because he says, you know, we have to store movies uh, on DVDs, and and where can pictures go? Uh, I'm going to take this a step back here and say, data discs can store anything. So you could store mm-hmm. your pictures on a CD. You could store your pictures on a uh, on a DVD you could store your pictures on a hard drive and the same is true for movies as long as they fit now if you want your DVD player not your computer but your DVD player to play a movie then it has to be in the UDF format on a DVD in a very specific directory order um, with video TS and audio TS folders in the right places right. but the toast or something will do that yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's easy enough to do, but it, you've got to follow a, a a prescribed method, and that's because your DVD player only knows how to do one thing, or that you know certainly knows how to do that thing. It might have other capabilities as well, mm-hmm. uh, but you can store all your movies uh, on a hard drive and in separate folders, and then point if you want to play them, point DVD player to it or VLC, and uh, and it'll play your movies off a hard drive. It'll play your movies off a CD. If the movie's small enough to fit on a 600 or 700 meg CD. So really your, your choice of where to store this stuff uh, comes down to what's the right media for you now and in the future and uh, how much space do you need? You know, you could, you could do a dual layer DVD and store all your pictures on it. Uh, it's probably not economical because two regular DVDs are going to be cheaper than a single dual layer, at least in my experience. So, uh, you know, but you got to figure out what's most important to you and, and do it that way. But, uh, but certainly you don't have to tie in my experience and my feeling is you don't have to tie any one type of media to any one uh, type of yep. media. And then and I'll, I'll use that word in two mm-hmm. ways in the same sentence. Okay. And then I'll appeal to the OCD crowd. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which I know there's one or two or, there's 247 15. of them, John. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh. No, but I was going to say you want to think your strategy. What do you want to save long term? What's like forever, like for the next generation? What's medium term and what's, you know, you take it once and you chuck it and then try to think. Uh, now, again, some people may not have the time to spend on thinking about this, but if you do think about it, you know, what what can you get rid of stuff you take on your iPhone? Uh, well, who the heck knows? It, it depends what's important to you. But, right. Um, right. you know, set up your uh, some stuff. Yeah, you could keep online and Pete and others, you know, pointed this out. Um, there's 
you know, mobile me and, and all these other, you know, Flickr and all these sorts of services where they're, they're probably good short to medium term storage, but not long term. Cause I think they typically ditch stuff after a certain amount of time, but they may offer plans to burn it for you. Who knows? I'm sure some of them do. Yep. And, and uh, a couple of people, Arun uh, wrote in, and of course, Pete, I know you have one mentioned the Drobo, you know, so it's a easy to use at home, idiot proof plug and play raid storage solution it, it's pure magic right, well, there it, you it's go. what it boils down magic. to i mean nice. the, the technology that goes into that thing has got to be worth 10 times what they're charging for it so wow free drobo commercial here. i think they're no, gonna I mean, send you a bill yeah <laughs> i mean think about it i mean you got four discs or you can put up to four discs in it and yeah. i think they can i think up to 16 terabytes on their new firewire one um I, i've got a little over one and a half in mine it's a ray to rare array. A disc fails. Hot swap it. Pull it out. Put a new one in. No lost data. No. So Even. it's striped. It's it, it's it raid is. five or whatever it, it is. It's striped and mirrored and everything else. It's it's bizarre how well and it's and it's plug and play. I mean, you it's USB or FireWire. Yep. You stick uh, two SATA drives in to start, and if you only have money for three hundred gig or two hundred gig drive, you put those in, and as you need more data. Put another drive in. And it automatically on the fly reconfigures. It reconfigures and stripes and it's good to go. I started off with a 320 and a 500, and now I have a 320, a 500, a 750, and a one terabyte in that thing. And and forgive me for not knowing all the details of the product here. Will, you can do USB or FireWire. You can't do a networked version of it yet, Um, can you? Well, no. uh, Mine's networked, but only because I have the Airport Extreme in Got it. on a USB. Sure. And so uh, sure. I don't have the FireWire version. But uh, uh, but even if you had FireWire, it wouldn't rocket network. Fast. I don't know. If I, you, there's a way to, you, you guys might know, you know better than me, if there's a way to network a FireWire one, maybe off of a off of an iMac that's always on or something. Well, that, yeah, that's yeah. what you'd have to do yeah. is hang it off of that. Yeah. yeah. Huh. But on the Mac itself, I think supports some level of RAID. So I guess this, the one thing it offers is that you can pop drives in and out pretty this is easily, which on the of fly. course you can't do. And it's they've got a little on, video on, a on there. It's, it, it waters your eyes the first time you see it. He, he puts on a movie <laughs> and plays the movie and then pulls one of the drives out and the movie continues to play and he puts another drive in. And <laughs> I think some of it's time compressed because it does take a long time to put all your data, obviously, onto another drive. Yeah. But, but it's slick. I love my Drobo. Huh, there it is. That's <laughs> and it loves you. I think. I'm, I'm pretty sure they didn't pay him to say that. Yeah. And uh, and I know you've dealt with their support too, and it's been great. Actually, uh, yeah. Early on, I had an issue, and uh, one of their they they don't guarantee this, but uh, one of their engineers actually emailed me and said, "Did did you get this worked out?" And what it it was beautiful. Wow. Very very strong support. Wow. Uh, all right, we're 46 minutes into this little puppet show here, John. Uh, do you want to talk about your email thing and then and then head out, or you want to save that for next week? Uh, we could. I'm going to look into tell, it a bit more. Tell, oh, you want to look into it a bit more? All right, that's fine. Well, so, no, I'll. You want me to go? Go. Let's go. Work hard. All right. Seriously, either that so, or I can talk about. We I can talk about uh, yeah. hard drive dis, hard drive space disappearing. You, you pick it. <laughs> Here we go. So here's my problem. I was um, so I run something called Spamfire, which is basically a, a I'll call it a mail proxy server. It's it's spam filtering. It talks to my email server. It talks to my mail program. It sits there and filters out junk. Well, for 
a little while, and I was I was tweeting to people about this, but it would sit there on my main ISP and just say, you know, filtering, filtering, filtering. I'm like, what the heck is going on? I thought it was a problem um, with company servers because they have an online service and stuff like that. But eventually, I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna look underneath the covers here. I'm gonna I'm gonna you know lift the hood and look in the engine of of my email and figure out what the heck's going on. So I tell them it directly to my ISP's pop server. And I'm like, you know, let, let me see what's going on here. So tell that into it. And it's uh, actually RFC 1939 um, request for comment, I guess. Uh, but, but that's for the pop or post office protocol. And so I decided to log in, run telnet from the command line, telnet to the server 110, enter username and password. And I'm like, all right, well, let me look at this. Let me type list. When I type list, of course, then I see a few messages and I'm like, well, that's really weird because the other utility is supposed to get rid of old messages. So apparently there was a mismatch between the utility that grabbed the mail and filtered it and my email server. So I'm like, well, you know what? I don't need the because they were old messages, too. So I got rid of all of them. Logged off. Logged back. Ran the, the spam fire again. Went right through them. No problem. So. I thought it was a problem with their servers because they do reach out and, and collect spam info and uh, and offer it back in a real-time fashion versus um, the stored database. So, um, but boy, that was annoying that I had to I'll dig tell you what underneath happened. the covers. And yeah, there, there was some mismatch where I think, uh, well, I'm thinking the utility had one idea of what the world looked like, but the, the server kept spitting back, well, I got these things. What do I do? And it's like, I don't know. <laughs> So, okay, so here but it is. Go I'm going to stand up on my soapbox because we've seen this oh, a brother. lot over the years. Now, it, you know, the POP, the post office protocol. So I, I think many of us are aware that when you set up your email, uh, the client typically asks you a question that says, is your account a POP account, P-O-P, or IMAP? POP is post office protocol. IMAP is internet mail access protocol. The POP protocol is really built to have messages come into the server and it, they sit on the server until your client connects and then sucks all the messages off the server and deletes them. That is when pop works best. IMAP on the other hand is built messages come into the server. They stay on the server and all your mailboxes stay on the server. And then your mail client merely syncs up with what's on the server. Now your mail client can, can make changes. You can move a message from your inbox to the trash or send a message out and file a copy of it in the sent box. And then when you connect with another mail client, it syncs up with the server and sees all those changes that have been made, including any new mail that's come in and that the server's delivered. The problem is when apps like Spamfire and, and even folks who are trying to manage their email and get it in three different places, but are connecting to a pop server are trying to treat pop like IMAP and leaving stuff on the server and managing it that way. And it always gets to the point where it fails. And the reason is the server keeps all your messages and assigns IDs to them. And the clients rely on that. They say, okay, well I've seen up through message uh, 3415. So I know that I don't need to look at messages one through 3415. I just need to look at 3416 and in the future. And if the mail server, and this happens with pop servers often, if they make any changes to the pop server, it could renumerate all your mail. And now let's say you had 15 messages on your, on the server 
your male client says, well, I'm going to look for messages 3516 to 3530. And the mail server says, I have messages one through 15. So the server's spam fire is going to say, well, I don't see message 3516, which means everything that's on the server is old and I've seen it before. It has no other way of knowing this because pop is not built to act this way. And, and it, it yes. you know, th- th- so this is the problem. So IMAP would be a much better solution. Now, of course, uh, mm-hmm. many ISPs don't offer IMAP and th- those that don't should be taken out and, uh, and fricasseed if, uh, if you will. Yeah. At least they should have be, they, the CEOs of these companies should be forced to stand up uh, in front of a crowd who is waving their fists in anger. That's uh, that, that's what that's what should happen. That's going to be the new punishment from the Geek Gab here. Or publish their email username and password. There you declare. go. That's there you go. Publish there. That's right. But anyway, that's uh, so. Yes, you, you must stand in front of a crowd of people shaking their fists in anger, and that that will be the new punishment here. For, wow. Uh, yeah. And and so so that's that. I, I know you use a uh, opt online, and they don't offer IMAP. Comcast actually Not does. That I can tell. Comcast does. Yeah. And so you're gearing up for the uh, political season, I think, with the shaking of the fist. The shaking of the fist. Oh, yeah. Pretty nasty. Less than a month away, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And pretty, pretty, pretty brutal. Oh, you know how it goes. That's, uh, that's folks up here in New Hampshire. What, 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 what do we what do we call ourselves? Uh, uh, coastal liberal uh, independent elitists or what? something like that. I think that's uh, with rocks. Huh? What's that? Some with rocks. I don't know about rocks. Granite, Granite? state. Is that what you're yeah. talking about? Yeah, who's that? We're in the granite state. That's what it's Is that called. you? That's what I thought. All right. Yeah. yeah, that's us. You're coming to the granite state in November, I hear. Granite-headed. <laughs> yeah, I think I will be. Uh, Somehow. Yeah, I booked my flight for uh, the show. The for Mac Really big show. Yep. It's getting pricey. It is. Fly. I know. I know. It's crazy. Fuel. Even though it's fuel not has gone down. No, no, no. Look. The airlines, the airlines were living hand to mouth for a long time. Yeah. We had this oil, and I'm making air quotes, crisis, uh, and all the airlines use that to raise their rates and add all these other fees. Now oil prices are going down. They leave the fees up. The good news is that the airlines are probably heading towards a point where they might actually be solvent. So that that's that's a good thing. <laughs> are we? Uh, yeah. What are you saying? Are you are you ready to go here? What? Okay. So, uh, speaking of Macworld, that's January 5th through 9th. There are still some hotel rooms. I I think it's down to a handful uh, of of rooms available, uh, especially for peak nights, which I think are Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So, uh, we've got a link in the show notes for you. You can, uh, in fact, if you just Google Macworld Hotel Deal, we're the first link you get. So, feel free to, oh yeah, yeah, it's good. Uh, iPhone Alley is... Michael Johnston's site and podcast, and he converts this show to AAC for you. And uh, let's see, Cashfly provides all the bandwidth. The podcast marketplace includes the A5 and A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, PDF Pen from Smile on My Mac, BB Edit from Barebone Software, and Notebook from Circus Ponies, all through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. I'm going to call you. How do I call you? I know. You know, I even... How do I call me? I started writing down that we had to talk about contact info on you. Just not here. 206-666-GEEK, which is, John? 4335. That's right. How else? Well, 
email. Yeah. Feedback yeah. at MacGeekGab.com. We certainly read lots of email tonight. Mm. Oh, yeah. Skype to MacGeekGab. You can send yep. smoke signals, but I'm not so good at reading them. I like the uh, the iTunes comments myself. Yeah, They're yeah, we love the iTunes comments. We love. <laughs> I had to laugh. I'm saying smoke signals here. I look in the little Skype chat that we yeah. have going during the show, and there's What's Pilot Pete doing, saying man? smoke signals. So we've got this mind meld happening here in the in the Durham studio. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what that means. More beer. More beer. <laughs> oh boy. Pete put a uh, put a. a I was going to say a nice picture. Pete put a picture of me during the pre-show up on uh, on nice. Twitter. Twitter. Yeah. You can find us on Twitter. We mentioned Twitter. Yeah. Twitter.com slash Pilot Pete. Twitter.com slash John F. Braun. And right. Twitter.com slash Dave Hamilton. Mm-hmm. It's cool. I still like it. It's fun. It's a nice it's a way blast. to keep in touch with everybody. But at a, at a slower pace. At a more relaxed pace. Mm-hmm. happens when you're relaxed well if you get too relaxed and when you think you're not then you get caught so don't get caught may not